A lot of the information in this podcast is covered in greater depth in my book, Compact of the Republic, The League of States and the Constitution. You can pick that up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. In that work, I argued that the American struggle with Britain was a constitutional crisis and a war for independence rather than a traditional revolution. Much of the content from this series is expounded upon in greater detail in Chapter 2. Again, you can pick that book up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. Are you ready to master historical topics without ingesting hours of readings or boring professors? Dave Benner, author of Compact of the Republic and contributor to the Tenth Amendment Center and Mises Institute, is your host. Sit back and behold the obliteration of conventional historical narratives, preferring dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery since 1776. It's Brush Fires of the Mind. The Struggle for American Independence Episode 21, Crossing the Delaware. Hi everyone and welcome back. By 1777, Patriot successes in their struggle against Britain were few and far between. But the two they did have under their belts was, first of all, the British were successfully pushed out of Boston by George Washington's Continental Army. And they essentially were never to return throughout the duration of the war. The second one is lesser known, but in the summer of 1776, Charleston was saved from a naval invasion fleet where um, at Fort Moultrie, forces commanded by um, Charles Lee and militia from South Carolina successfully repelled this invasion attempt. After that time, uh, Britain focused on New York entirely, and that's when we got the Battle of Long Island. So by 1777, the Continental Army had been dealt an entire series of setbacks in their struggle against what was then the greatest empire in the world. One of these was the unsuccessful Canadian invasion by Benedict Arnold, where in the Battle of Quebec, it pretty much ended the American attempts to capture Quebec as a wartime aim. And it ended up in the capture of lots of pro-patriot forces as well. Also in the Battle of Long Island, we, which we talked about before, where New York was captured thanks to William Howe's successful invasion, where the entire Continental Army had almost been captured. This caused, of course, George Washington and his forces to flee into New Jersey, which would basically be where the center of the war was for the next several years. In the Battle of Valcour Island, the Americans had essentially lost most of the naval forces they had committed to that region, and it's generally considered a military stalemate, but really the Americans lost out more when it comes to war resources and things of that nature. The other item that I'd like to mention, which we haven't talked about, was the loss of Fort Washington and Fort Lee, uh, named after George Washington and Charles Lee respectively, high commanders in the Continental Army. Now, both of these forts were located in New York and remained occupied following William Howe's um, successful invasion into New York and when Washington had to flee. What happened there was a series of disagreements over what was to happen over Fort Washington unfolded. Charles Lee, believing that the occupation of Fort Washington was completely untenable, recommended that it should be evacuated immediately. I believe there is about 2,000 soldiers there 
um, pro-patriot soldiers that, you know, were in this fight for the patriot cause, but he didn't think that fort could possibly be held, that the British were uh, undoubtedly um, able to capture it within due time. Washington, however, deferred to his subordinate Horatio Gates to decide what to do here, rather than ordering the evacuation. What ended up happening is Horatio Gates, instead of ordering the evacuation, ended up reinforcing the fort with additional forces, almost to the number of 3,000. And in November of 1776, Fort Washington was seized by the British, ending in the capture of about 3,000 forces. Now this was huge. This was a big part of the war that gets almost no coverage or publicity. Keep in mind that at about this point, Washington's Continental Army had only about 5,000 forces. So that was over two-thirds of the army. So of what his current army would be, I should say. So this was just a huge loss. And for Charles Lee, it was truly the last straw. He had had it with the strategy of Washington. We'll talk a little bit more about that momentarily. But even Washington seems to have been in a desperate mood at this point. He actually wrote to a family member at one point saying, I think the game is pretty near up. And by all appearances, it looked like it was. It looked like this struggle against Britain would go down in obscure fashion, be suppressed rather quickly by superior forces, both in number and training, possessed by Howe, against the ragtag colonial uh, patriots. So as I mentioned, the loss of Fort Washington was the last straw for Charles Lee, who had said we had to evacuate this fort. There's no way we can maintain a presence there. And in December of 1776, he wrote the following, quote, A certain great man is most damnably deficient. He has thrown me into a situation where I have my choice of difficulties. If I stay in this province, I risk myself and my army. And if I do not stay, the province is lost forever. So Charles Lee was essentially, uh, at this point, completely against the leadership of George Washington. And he actually began a letter-writing campaign to members in the Congress. Charles Lee actually at that point was a rather popular person. Um, he had a lot of military experience, which we'll mention momentarily. But Lee at this point was trying to convince Congress to replace Washington with himself as commander-in-chief of the army, whereupon they would send orders to Washington to step down or be a subordinate to Lee. Now there is some evidence to conclude that some members of Congress had considered this and by this point had started to doubt the strategic efficacy of George Washington. However, fate smiled upon Washington in the coming days because of what was soon to happen to Lee. So let's just introduce Charles Lee real quick because we haven't talked a lot about him. I wanted to delve a little bit into his background. So Charles Lee was an experienced soldier who fought in the French and Indian War on the British side. He was trained in classical European style warfare. He's called the hero of Charleston, but really that's a bit of a myth because what happened there was he had successfully built fortifications in and around Fort Moultrie um, and in order to stop the British naval fleet, that port would have to be defended. However, Charles Lee actually recommended the evacuation of that fort. 
what stopped the evacuation in that in that point was military governor John Rutledge of South Carolina had ordered the fort to be reinforced. So even against the judgment of Lee, the fort was reinforced and they successfully stopped the British Navy at that point. Now notice how this is almost the polar opposite of what happened in Fort Washington where Lee correctly said that this should be evacuated and it wasn't. But nonetheless, Lee became known as the hero of Charleston, not because of the military recommendation he made, but he was a big part of the construction of the ramparts and the fortifications that were in and around that area. Charles Lee generally favored grand guerrilla warfare over traditional military clashes. Now this, again, was another factor that set him apart from many of his peers that were commanders in the colonial army, including George Washington. Um, in fact, George Washington was almost uh, bound to adopt a completely divergent uh, strategic course than this. Washington had classically thought that militia and guerrilla war warfare tactics were unreliable, unprofessional, and would lead to catastrophe, whereas Charles Lee thought that that had to be the cornerstone of this this entire clash, otherwise the Patriots would not stand a chance against British. He said there's no way we can beat the British in what they do best, above any other power in the world. Now, I claim that fortune smiled highly upon Washington in the previous slide because of what was soon to happen to Lee. Just two days after he wrote the aforementioned letter criticizing Washington's character and strategic blunders in the war, he was bizarrely captured. And I say that because of the circumstances involved. Now, Charles Lee had been ordered to join Washington's Continental Army in Pennsylvania for several weeks. And really, it's considered on the part of many historians to be a blunder on the part of Lee by staying kind of separate and apart from Washington's army, especially because the Patriot numbers were sizably smaller than the British masses. But what Lee was trying to do there was actually recruit militia in and around the area that his army was. He thought that this would be a pivotal step to have a chance to defeat Howe. Because he said that, well, Howe is bound to come in and take Washington's army at this point unless there's sizable reinforcements to recoup from the losses of Fort Washington. And I think he was actually correct about that. However, it is probable to conceive this uh, position as insubordination because Washington had ordered him to join the Continental Army where it was camped out in Pennsylvania at the time. Now, historians kind of differ on the rightness or wrongness of Lee's position here. Just to give you an example, Murray Rothbard believes that it was entirely appropriate for Lee to stay apart from Washington's forces to uh, do this, to try to rally militia forces, start to recruit, uh, drill, etc. But a historian, Don Higginbotham, questions this. He thinks that Charles Lee was completely in the wrong here. Whether or not you think he was in the right or the wrong, I think he was um, involved in some degree of insubordination here. Now, he was bizarrely captured in White's Tavern in Basking Ridge, New Jersey in December, two days after writing that letter. Now, as the story goes, as he and his closest advisors were in White's Tavern for the night, 
Um, he was actually captured while in a nightgown writing letters, and one can see how this could have been considered an embarrassing situation. And it certainly was. This was considered a major loss for the Continental Army. One of its top commanders had been seized. He was often considered the second in command of the Continental Army at this point, but technically that position fell on Artemis Ward. However, Ward's position um, made him something of an inactive persona because he had been experiencing health issues, and I believe he would retire completely the by the next year. But anyways, this was a major loss. Charles Lee was considered a pivotal part of uh, this movement and a majorly uh, experienced commander. It was a big loss for the Patriots, and his capture was certainly celebrated in Britain. It's interesting because Charles Lee had found himself to be one of the most radical, um, committed people to the Patriot cause with any sort of military experience because after serving in the French and Indian War, he served Europe in various he served Britain in various capacities, including a war in Portugal, and then he served as a mercenary on behalf of the King of Poland. It was only in the early 1770s that he was won over to the Patriot cause, and he was zealous for it. He was a Whig uh, radical, unlike Washington, who, although he favored independence, Washington was more of an aristocrat conservative. But anyways, this was a major loss. And Charles Lee, for the next two years, would be a captive of the British. And we'll talk more about that, too, because there's some interesting tidbits to that whole experience as well. Now, at this point, Washington had convinced himself that a bold, cunning strike was necessary to confront the Hessians in their camp near Trenton before the end of the year. And several things convinced him of this. One, the morale of the Patriot forces was in a state of utter desolation at this point. It was perhaps the lowest morale of any point in the conflict. Nothing had gone right. Fort Washington had been captured, his army had been ejected from New York entirely, and Charles Lee had been captured. So what was more is that many of the enlistments of the Continental Army forces were due to be expired by the end of the year. So by January 1st of 1777, many of the forces in his army were set to go home. So before that, Washington wanted to produce a strike that would raise the morale, kind of try to turn the tides of this war. And one of the ways he hoped to do that was through the successful use of military intelligence. Because whatever you think about Washington and the blunders that he often faced during this war, he was committed to military intelligence before most commanders in the world, in the world at that time. And as the story goes, he actually sent a man named John Honeyman who posed as a Tory to Trenton and Tren he had no problem establishing his Tory credentials um, by the way because he had a reputation for them and there according to the legend Honeyman gathered intelligence on British and Hessian forces while at the same time convincing those forces that the Continental Army was in a worse state of condition than it actually was Honeyman had been arranged creatively to be recaptured by the Continental Army so he could kind of give this intelligence to Washington. Now, I don't want to say that this legend is set in stone as historical reality because historians to this day dispute this. The story, I believe, originates from Honeyman's family many years after the events this happened, and I don't think much documentation exists to uh, establish this. However, I wanted to share it because it shows 
um, what we know about Washington. He was committed to strategic um, military intelligence, whatever else you would say about him. So Washington had decided at this point that a crossing of the river was going to be necessary. He had thought that by the end of the year, if the river had frozen, William Howe and his Hessian allies would come for the Continental Army either way. Also, remember, his forces um, had enlistments that were going to expire, so we need to do this now, thought Washington. So he conducted, um, I should say concocted, a plan that was very reminiscent of things Washington did. Um, a bold plan with several moving parts, all of which had to work um, according to particular times, otherwise it would risk failure of the operation. And this was Washington's most shining moment. Um, without this plan, we could be singing a different tune or have a completely different world in the North American continent as far as I'm concerned. When Washington announced that the time to strike was here, he did it through a written note that said victory or death, which also happened to be a password for anyone involved in the operation that I'm about to talk about. The operation was one in which Washington and the Continental Forces would cross the Delaware River into New Jersey and on separate parallel roads um, venture down to Trenton where the Hessians were camped out at, surprise them and hopefully capture them. Now Washington also involved several different groups of forces on diversionary attacks to try to throw off uh, British and Hessian um, forces from anticipating this strike. Well, at first, the plan appealed, appeared to be an utter failure. This was because icy and cold weather prevented effective mobilization. Two detachments of Washington's were unable to cross the river, leaving 3,000 forces stranded behind. Remember, Washington's army was about 5,000. So two of the three of the 5,000 weren't even able to cross the river in the first place. Also, timing had caused risk to rise as well because Washington's forces didn't end up starting the crossing of the river until several hours after they were originally intended to do that. Now, this was an interesting circumstance because this raid included some of the most famous Americans of what we would consider the founding generation. Other than Washington, uh, Alexander Hamilton, James Monroe, and future Supreme Court Justice John Marshall were a part of this invasion in the Continental ranks at the time. Monroe actually got wounded in this battle and nearly died, although there was very few casualties on the American side, as we'll learn in a second here. Now, thankfully for the Continental Army, the Hessian forces were completely surprised by Washington's attack and totally caught off guard. Historians still kind of debate and discuss why exactly they were so caught off guard because there is some evidence to conclude that the Hessian forces believe that an attack may be happening by the end of the year. They use their own agents to try to gather intelligence on Washington's army and put some eyes on it to try to understand what was going to happen. Um, there's also some evidence that the Hessian forces tried to convince the Hessian commander, whose name was Johann Rahl, to try to reinforce Trenton with fortifications, but very few were made. And at one point, I think Rahl is even... Uh, recorded as having saying, we'll just give them the bayonet if they attack. Um, according to a story, which I believe is substantiated by at least a few accounts, um, when a Hessian learned of Washington's gathering 
on the night before this attack, he'd actually recorded this in a note. He brought it back to the Hessian camp and gave it to Commander Johann Rahl, who supposedly, without reading it, placed it in his coat pocket. Now, Rahl was actually shot and killed um, that night of the battle, but that note was supposedly found within his coat after the battle. Um, so <laughs> there's some evidence to, to suggest he was tipped off to this but never acted on it. Nonetheless, Rahl did try to rally his forces on the northern side of the camp and try to have a concerted defensive posture against Washington. Nonetheless, it did fail, and most of the Hessian forces were captured at that point in Trenton. About 900 were captured. There's about 100 casualties on the Hessian side, I believe, and Washington's army, the Continental Army, only suffered seven casualties. Among them was future President James Monroe, who we mentioned earlier. So the man who had become the fifth president of the United States was somewhat lucky to have escaped this without succumbing to his wound. Now, the Battle of Trenton was pivotal for patriot morale, no matter how small of a success uh, it was militarily, because it was small. A thousand forces was a large number, but these weren't professional British forces. Nonetheless, this victory was exploited as a propaganda victory for Washington and his Continental forces. Indeed, it inspired soldiers to extend their enlistments. It was much easier for Washington to convince some of these soldiers to extend their enlistments, in some cases for free, to fight on into the next year after having won this battle. It actually also attracted new recruits. Um, Washington hoped to follow up the Battle of Trenton very quickly that year if he could. Um, in the planning stages of this battle, it was determined that if, in fact, the Continental Army had successfully captured the Hessians, they would immediately move on to Trenton to confront other forces there and try to take them as well at the same time. Washington did end up doing that, but it wouldn't be until the next uh, year, so early January, where he was able to do that. This was a big victory, and it was something that stunned much of the world because by this point, many, including Washington himself, believe that this cause may soon be over, as we read in that letter at the beginning. So as I alluded to, Washington followed up on the Battle of Trenton with the Battle of Princeton. So shortly after his exploits in Trenton, he struck the British at Princeton, New Jersey. 1,400 British forces were hit by Washington's 5,000-man army. At that point, he was able to amass the entirety of the army, although he crossed back to his encampment before crossing again to go to Princeton. And the casualties on the American side were 84, and the British was 450. This was another big victory. And it doesn't get nearly the notoriety as the Battle of Trenton because it wasn't such a stunning surprise, but it was significant, perhaps even more significant in some ways. That is because most of New Jersey is lost to the Patriots, and Washington's forces were able to enter winter quarters in a much more satisfying, confident, and energized state than they had once believed they would. Referring to the successes of the Continental Army in the Battle of Trenton and Princeton, British historian George Otto Trevelyan said the following, quote, It may be doubted whether so small a number of men ever employed so short a space of time with greater and more lasting effects upon the history of the world. And it's kind of hard to dispute this. 
Because even though the British looked at the Patriot victories in the Battle of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton as minor victories, the Americans thought that they had a chance to win the war at this point. There was extremely positive press to follow these victories, and Washington became something of a colonial hero and kind of developed a call of personality from here forward. Um, also, one thing I forgot to say about the Battle of Princeton was that it was uh, the, the British forces were under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Charles Mahood, who was a subordinate of Charles Cornwallis. So building upon the success that the Patriots had against the Hessians, they had now defeated a detachment of British regulars. This was considered significant. Now, at the same time as these events were unfolding, Thomas Paine, who we've talked about quite a bit, began to publish the American Crisis. Because remember, the morale was dry at this point before the battles of Princeton, Princeton and Trenton. And Paine was willing to do whatever he could to try to inspire Patriot forces. He wrote a series of pamphlets, 16 in total, to try to inspire, argue on the side of the Whig pro-Patriot forces, and to justify the military confrontation that the Continental Army was giving toward the British. It was really intended to boost morale. Some of his basic points in this series included, one, Britain has no right to invade the states. The states should just be left alone. Just as in England, some of the famous Whigs like Edmund Burke were arguing the whole time, and Charles James Fox. He also said the king is trying to re-enslave the American states by imposing his rule on them militarily this time. He said that loyalists are betraying their country. Now remember, this is opposed to the pro-Tory view, which was essentially that the Patriots are betraying their country, they're traitors, they're engaging in a rebellion. Payne said it's actually just the reverse. Patriotism is not a commitment to one's government, it's a commitment to liberty. That's what Payne, that's what Payne thought. Payne also said success will be entirely costly, but it will be worth it in the long run to our country and our posterity. So among the famous quotes that Payne wrote about in this series of pamphlets is this one. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink away from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. So that's possibly one of the most famous lines that Payne had ever written, but one can kind of understand that statement more in the context of the times. They were trying times for supporters of this engagement that the colonies had been putting toward the British. And he said that it's only natural that in times such as this, people that don't have the courage to stand up entirely, who he calls the summer soldiers, will shrink from the devotion of their cause. Now, Payne's writings were read not only by Americans who happened to purchase their local newspaper, but also by military forces in the Continental Army. And some of the other statements he had also deserve some recognition. One of them was this, quote, This continent, sir, is too expensive to sleep all at once, and too watchful, even in its slumbers, not to startle at the unhallowed foot of an invader, because that is what the colonies came to understand 
Britain as being, at least the pro-patriot forces, that these were invaders trying to take what is theirs and to basically impose a tyranny upon the colonies. Payne also wrote this, quote, God Almighty will not give up a people to military destruction or leave them unsupportedly to perish who have so earnestly and so repeatedly sought to avoid the calamities of war by every decent method which wisdom could invent. Now the last segment of writings from this series that I wanted to cover is the following. Payne wrote this, quote, What have you done with our independence? We ask no leave of yours to set it up. We ask no money of yours to support it. We can do better without your fleets and armies than with them. You may soon have enough to do to protect yourselves without being burthened with us. We are very willing to be at peace with you, to buy of you and sell to you, and, like young beginners in the world, to work for our own living. Therefore, why do you put yourselves out of cash when we know you cannot spare it? And we do not desire you to run you into debt. So Payne is saying that this is a futile fight on the behalf of the British. We wish only peace of you. We only wish to maintain what always was ours. Remember, the classic Whig line of reasoning was that our traditional English-based liberties are being trampled upon by the British, and that's why we're fighting. Payne is saying, we have no problem trading with you. Just leave us alone, and you're putting yourselves out of cash anyways. That's essentially what Edmund Burke was saying from the British side this whole time. Now, some of the readings I'm suggesting for this episode are new entries, including David McCullough's 1776, which delves much deeper into the battles of Trenton and Princeton in particular, and it's a really good read if you like to cover that subject. Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, which we've often recommended, but I did specifically mention it in this episode because Rothbard has a lot of writings in there that show a very pro-Charles Lee inclination, and I think it's really worth it to watch that. Conversely, I'm actually including Don Higginbotham's book on George Washington as well because Higginbotham is very pro-Washington and anti-Charles Lee when it comes to the exact circumstances we covered in this episode. Also, my own Compact of the Republic, the League of States, and the Constitution delves into this as well. And I'll include a link to that so you can pick that up on Amazon. If you pick that up, I really appreciate it. So, in the next episode, we'll talk about what the states did to restructure their governments once they had thrown off the chains of the British system. Because it wasn't just easy enough to sever themselves from the British, they had to reform their entire governments to adopt to the climate of not having a monarchy. So we'll take a little bit of a break from the military circumstances of the war to explain the political in the next episode. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Brush Fires of the Mind. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, drop by my website, www.davebenner.com, click podcast, and you can subscribe right there.